This is Wayne Jernell, editor of Theory and Research in Social Education, and this episode of Visions of Education features a TRSC published author. Enjoy. You're listening to Visions of Education, a podcast where we take a look at big ideas in education from different perspectives. Hi, I'm Michael Milton, a high school teacher from Massachusetts. And I'm Dan Kretka, an education professor in Texas. We're here to help bridge the gap between educators in the K-12 and those professors in higher ed. We hope this podcast will help bring those fuzzy ideas in education into focus. Michael, we are in the 21st century now. I just want to remind myself that sometimes I forget, like, if 21st century means 2000. Oh, right, right, right. It's confusing. I think kids get confused by that, too. But, okay, not my point. We're in the 21st century now, so... I kind of am curious, like, what are 21st century skills? I feel like I hear phrases like this in education, but I'm not really sure exactly what we're talking about. Do do you have any ideas? I always feel a little bit out of it just because I I grew up in the 20th century and Mm -hmm. my schooling took place. So I don't really know if I'm well suited sometimes to talk about 21st century skills. But if you want to talk about, like, you know, me being, I guess, archaic, but like, the difference between like growing up and today, I know that like information is, is everywhere where it wasn't mm-hmm. before. And so I feel like being able to suss out good information is important. And I don't know if sussing stuff out is a, a skill or at least a 21st century skill, but like, I feel like you have like a, there's just so much info in trying to find good stuff is, yeah, that is a skill. Right. Yeah. I mean, I think if any like administrators or superintendents are listening to this podcast, you could rebuild your curriculum around Michael's idea of sussing stuff out. That's it. That's what life (laughs) is, really. But I do feel like that was important in the 18th or in the 19th century or whatever, or 20th century. Yeah. Because you want to figure things out, particularly if you're solving crimes. Well, there used to be a lot less information, right? And so, no, I actually think I think you're right that how we manage information is is really good skill to think about because it's everywhere, right? Of course, this is a longer problem. I like to think about the old electric telegraph, right? Which was like kind of the first way we started sending instant information because it used to to be information only traveled as fast as I guess your train. I think the train was the fast, the railroads were the fastest thing at that time. But now we have access to so much information, but it doesn't really seem like information is like like a lack of information is the problem. It's more like wisdom to use it. So maybe that's, maybe we like the wisdom of understanding the difference between information and knowledge and wisdom. Could that be a 21st century skill? Well, you said wisdom four times in that sentence. So sure. <laughs> so that's, so sussing things out and wisdom are your, are the new curriculum in schools, right? But that's I think it. that's all you need. Just those two things, just those two things and nothing else. That's it. So, but I think when people are talking about 21st century skills, what they're really talking about is how we adapt to the the current world, right? To what, to how things are different and what type of schools do we need? Because surely there are some things that should be different in schools than they were like a hundred or 150 years ago. Oh, sure. To be sure. Like, I feel like, you know, growing up, we've talked about this and how like our, our curriculum should expand beyond like, you know, like when I was a kid, it was definitely very uh, like white Eurocentric history. And that definitely is something that needs to change. I feel like getting uh, more voices, not just more voices, but being able to show a more fuller history is definitely an important curriculum shift. And being able to understand a variety of perspectives is definitely an important skill. Hey, that's another one. 
perspectives, right? Yeah. And I mean, of course, like, you know, I've, I've read recently Jarvis Givens' Fugitive Pedagogy book. And of course, like Black communities have always been teaching their histories, right? It's just that the, they were outlawed. And so a lot of our public schools just didn't adopt curriculum that was inclusive or teaching for a multiracial democracy. So I think, you know, educating for a multiracial democracy, that could be a tw- good 21st century skill. Seems like we still have some stuff we need to work out as a society. All right. So I wasn't actually too sure about like the whole 21st century thing. And when we first started this conversation, <laughs> but I'm actually kind of buying into it now. I, I kind of, I'm interested, I'm leaning into it. And so do we have people that we can talk a little bit about more perhaps about this? Or oh yeah. I, I, of course, like if we ended the podcast here, that'd be rather disappointing. It'd be um, a very short podcast. Yeah. I mean, I've just repeated the word wisdom many times. Hope, hope that would catch on. I think on. it's so like seven at this point. Yeah. Let's bring in people with more words than me, right? A little bit larger vocabulary. So we would like to welcome into the podcast, Catherine Kramer, Kristen Wilcox, and Amanda Lester. Welcome. Thank you so much for having us. You're welcome. Thank you. It's great to be here. Thank you. I'm very excited to be here with Amanda and Dr. Wilcox. And so I, I think I'm feeling a bit nervous because I'm actually on this education podcast and I am not an educator. (laughs) I don't study education. I'm not a teacher. My background is actually in mental health and social welfare and social work. And before that, my background was in policy. So in in like working in state government. So I'm really excited to be here, but also I think feeling maybe like a bit of a fraud since I'm on an education podcast, but I'm a social worker. But thank you for having me anyway. You know what? I th- actually think this is a, uh, we're bringing back a good 20th century skill. Cause I feel like in the 21st century, we've specialized and put ourselves into like, we, we have like, we're just into communication oftentimes with people in our field. Um, I think we're bringing back an old skill of actually talking to people with different types of experiences. Cause we can learn a lot from each other. Right. So how about before we go on further, first thing, Catherine Kramer, we welcome you into the Thank education you. world. We have lots. Thank you. We know we have lots that we love. We love bringing guests into our classroom as, as teachers. And so, but what we'd like to do first to start is just learn a little bit about each of you and your kind of educational backgrounds. Yeah. So as I said, I'm actually a social worker and right now I work as a mental health clinician with children and youth in community-based and school-based settings. I will say, and I think this is formative and shout out to my mom, but I'm both the pro- I'm the product of teachers on both sides of my family, many generations. So I think educators, teachers, the teaching profession is something I've been around my whole life. I ended up being much more interested in the other things going on in the lives of young people. And I think that's what drove me into social work. But right now I'm, I am a clinician and I'm getting my uh, PhD at the university at Albany in social welfare. And as I mentioned a moment ago, I actually used to work in state government, in politics, and in, in public administration. So in my background is in undergrad, I studied political science. So a lot of those experiences, I just sort of foreground them now because I think they were really informative when I was doing this study. And I know I brought a lot of my thinking from those experiences into this work. I'll just give a quick little plug for something that I will invite Dr. Wilcox to talk more about after she introduced herself. This is actually kind of an exciting opportunity because not only is this study interesting in of itself, but it comes from a project that involves many different studies, New York Kids, and she'll talk more about that. But I'll just say that I got really excited about being involved in this work because I think 
you know, my interest in children and youth has brought me through a variety of different sort of research settings. So I've done research in juvenile justice and child welfare and education. And New York Kids was really exciting to me because the mission is so focused on learning from educators and learning how to craft institutions and policies that actually prepare all students, all young people to excel. And so that really aligned with my mission. And I'll let Dr. Wilcox talk more about that. But thanks for having me. So um, I want to say thank you for having me on tonight with Dr. Wilcox and Catherine. And and actually, I, I know Catherine. I've known Catherine for years because even though I've been an educator for almost 30 years, Catherine and I actually met when we were in a, a master's program in public affairs and policy for me and public administration for her. So I think, you know, even though, you know, Catherine, you know, mentions that she's a social worker and not an educator, I think what is exciting about this work that we've done together with Dr. Wilcox is that it has such boundary spanning potential and really, I think, mirrors you know, what the the nexus of this whole article is about, about, you know, really kind of helping students to evolve, you know, as, as, as individuals and also ac- as academic con- contributors to, to, to society. So, so that's been a kind of a really exciting piece for me uh, in being involved in this. So, like I said, I, I've been in education for 30 years. I started out as a, a Actually, my undergrad is in music industry, so I've I, I moved into music ed from there for a, a short stint and then realized I re- really loved teaching more than I, I loved specifically teaching music. So I got a, a, another certification in elementary education. So from there, just things kind of evolved and I ended up in education policy where I've been for about 12 years and, you know, and, and that you know, kind of through that process. I've also worked in state government. I've worked in legislature. I've worked for an association for educator preparation. And I've also, you know, um, you know, like I said, I've, I've gone to, you know, I met Catherine as a student and our um, side-by-side kind of career development at the University at Albany led us to continuing to work together and then um, led me to be connected with New York kids, which is really exciting. It kind of is the culmination of, of so many things that I've, you know, for me personally, that I'm interested in, not just in policy, but, you know, in practice. And my current work is really, it's, it's working with schools, K-12 schools to help support them in, you know, it, through a coaching model and, you know, developing strategies and, and different supports so to make sure that their you know, students are, are succeeding. So, so this has been, you know, such an, an, an exciting culmination of, of everything I've done. And so I just wanted, you know, so for when Catherine says she's not an educator, she's truly an educator in different ways. And I think we all are bringing our, our different kinds of experiences with education to fruition in, in this work that we did together. You are too kind, Amanda. <laughs> Thank you. You're welcome. <laughs> I have enjoyed our partnership as well. Yes, absolutely. <laughs> Okay, I guess I'm next, and it's really a delight to be here with uh, Amanda and Catherine. You know, we've worked together and learned from each other as we proceeded with this study, and 
So I'm the research and development director of New York Kids. I'm also an associate professor of educational policy and leadership in the School of Education at the University of Albany. Amanda, Catherine, and I are, are somewhat of a team of misfits. Catherine and Amanda, I hope you don't mind me saying that, but we all come with different angles on our research, but we share this passion for investigating um, what's happening in our schools, uh, particularly focused on New York State. But many of the things that we're dealing with in New York State are things that are that we're dealing dealing with across uh, the United States and, and across the world in terms of addressing equity and inclusion issues. So the studies we design under the research practice partnership I lead are really meant to kind of investigate what, where do we see pockets of excellence around, you know, providing opportunities for people of every race, ethnicity, ling- language background, any kind of disability status to feel as if they are welcomed and included in their schools and that they're offered a variety of different opportunities to reach their own p- potentials. So that's kind of the core work that we do in New York Kids is, is to investigate those places where we see those things happening. So I was really happy to work with, you know, Catherine and Amanda on this study. Um, they, they took some data from the larger study that we can talk about later, and they ran with it and in this particular direction around civic engagement. So I thought that was a really important thing for us to explore more. And just last thing about me, I I mean, I I look at myself as a bridging scholar that goes between different fields. So I look at curriculum and instruction issues, but also through a policy and leadership lens. And I'm also what you would consider a translational scholar in the sense that I look to do research, but research that has practical implications for what school and district leaders and teachers, support staff, social workers, for example, can actually do day in and day out on the ground with kids in the schools. I like that your your research um, isn't just for it to be published and put behind a paywall, it doesn't seem like, right? Which unfortunately feels like what a lot of research is. A lot of people are doing great research out there, but sometimes it's the, it doesn't seem like we have that aim for having real impact, right? In the world and communities and working across disciplines. But you all have already hinted at it. You have a publication that was published in Theory and Research in Social Education. And Michael and I know that that's no small feat. So first, congratulations on publishing in the journal. Thank you. And so the article is titled College, Career, and Civic Readiness, Building School Communities that Prepare Youth to Thrive as 21st Century Citizens. So you've told us a little bit about it, but, you know, give us the full picture now. Tell us about this project. Yeah, so I'll just, Dr. Wilcox, I don't know if you want to just first to kind of explain a little bit about the schools that were involved in this project, how we selected them. New York Kids has a really interesting methodology, and they've been doing that for many years. And so I'll invite her to share a little bit about who was involved in this, how did they get picked, how they get selected. Yeah, so years ago, when we were funded by the state of New York, we were kind of given this this gargantuan task to try to identify promising practices, or what people used to call best practices. Promising practices is a term we like to tend towards because um, they're not necessarily going to be best for everybody. So we've always taken a lens that, you know, we need to look at variability of community contexts, what different kids need in different communities in our studies. So we kind of build our studies to look at demographic factors that matter. For example, a, a young person's experience in a small rural school may be very different than, than in a suburban school or an urban school or one of even our large urban districts around our state. 
So we kind of apply this, what we call a social ecological lens to each of our studies so that we try to look at variability by the contextual factors in a particular community. So that's first. And then uh, we use a design called a multiple case study design. And multiple case studies are meant to not necessarily be generalizable to all places across the entire planet or anything like that. But they're really meant for you to be able to kind of replicate a particular methodology across multiple settings and look for patterns among them. So in our studies, we typically pick schools to go investigate that have a particular set of outcomes that are unusual. We call those positive outlier schools. So there's a whole lot of research about positive outliers. Some people call them positive deviants. Um, but these po positive outliers are really places where you see a trend, not just a blip, but something that you see over three, four or five years, maybe even longer, where they're getting unusual outcomes about around, you know, some kind of outcome measure. So in this study, we were looking at graduation outcomes and we looked at graduation outcomes in terms of four year and five year graduation rates. And then we also loaded into our kind of analysis, they call a regression analysis, um, these different demographic factors like, you know, what percentage of their population identifies as Hispanic or Latinx or what what population do they have in terms of like poverty, income, those kinds of things that that we factor in. So we looked at a variety of different variables. And what we get out of that is a set of schools that are unusual in a good way. And we call those positive outliers. And then we designed the study so we have a comparison set so we can look at differences because it's hard to say whether something is different if you don't have a comparison to it. So we designed this study to include 10 schools around our state that varied in their geographic like location, somewhere in upstate and western New York and, and, and downstate New York, and then different kinds of communities, rural, suburban, and urban. And we identified those that are positive outliers, and then they met, we matched them with a typically performing set of schools. So those are, if you think about a, a curve, these are the schools that are kind of right in the middle. They're doing exactly what you would expect them to do, but their population not necessarily bad. And we compare those with the positive outliers. We don't look at negative outliers. In other words, those schools that are underperforming suboptimally with those populations because those schools tend to be under review from the state and are, have a, a variety of different things that are happening that kind of really muddies our data set. So we have these two sets of schools that we compare with each other. So that's kind of how the design works. Then we, in, in terms of sampling, and then we go out and we do field work. So we actually go to these schools, do observations in the schools. We talk to a whole lot of people through interviews and focus group protocols. We investigate a whole lot of things about what's happening in their school. We collect documents and that kind of thing. So that's what our data set includes. And then we go through a whole set of analyses at that point to try to distinguish what is different about those positive outliers? You know, what, what can we learn about the things that they share that, that may be, you know, really helpful for other people to take up in their schools? So that's just in a nutshell. I will say that Promising Practices seems like a great podcast if you want to you become our rivals at some point. Yeah, I think you could spin this off into, into a different one. Yeah. And I also, you know, I'll say something else that resonated with me is I feel like my teachers used to call me a negative outlier in, in school. I wasn't always paying attention either. <laughs> well, I will say, Dan, I am a, a licensed social worker. So if there's anything you need to work out related to that, I can send you my contact information. I am trained in this area. So just I'll put that out there and I'll Thank let you. you pick that up if you need it. 
Yeah, um, that's but, that's gonna be a full time nine to five job, I think. You know? <laughs> <laughs> wow. Okay. Well, I got a, a, a exciting podcast and maybe a new job opportunity. There so we go. It pays. It pays about the same amount as Michael and I get paid for this podcast. <laughs> um, well, no, I but, don't know. Yeah, I, I don't know how if you've seen what social workers make. But jo- joking aside, I really appreciate. I mean, I love the this study. I think it's a challenging thing to look at, right, in education because uh, contexts are so different. And so to draw comparisons and find again, I love the vocabulary you're using here: promising practices, right, as as opposed to best practices, which makes it seem universal that this is the best thing for everyone. Um, and identify this so. Well, yeah, well, I'm curious, what did we find out? What are some promising practices? How do we help, you know, schools, you know, kind of beat what seems to be these kind of very predictable patterns that they get put into, but by a lot of the ways we measure them? Yeah, so this is Catherine. I, I just want to thank Dr. Wilcox for providing that rich explanation of kind of how the project worked. And, you know, we spent a lot of time. Um, it was a big team of people, you know, certainly more than just the three of us here who were able to do all of that work. And I think as we've been hinting at throughout this, one of the things that was just so exciting to me about this project is that it was interdisciplinary. So I'll just talk like briefly a little bit about some of what really struck me initially when I was working with this data and then kind of what led to us looking very intentionally at uh, citizenship preparation. So as I mentioned before, I, I came to this work really with a youth development lens in mind. And so one of the things that I was so struck by um, when I was involved in the site visits and doing the coding and transcribing and analysis was the extent to which um, educators in positive outlier schools described practices and policies that were aligned with positive youth development, which for those who don't know, is a framework that is strengths-based and really emphasizes a holistic development of youth across cognitive, social, and emotional dimensions. And that was a, a really strong contrast to the other average, you know, typical performing schools, which had a greater focus on academics and on graduation. And so that's actually, and we can put this in the show notes, we have another uh, publication that's focused specifically on the findings related to positive youth development, but I mention it here just because that inspired so much my thinking related to citizenship and then what got us to take another look at the data uh, through that lens. So, you know, I noted that educators in positive outlier schools were talking much more about citizenship preparation, so decided to focus on that very intently. And so, you know, as I think as Dr. Wilcox was saying, we can't say that, that you know, the study that is focusing on, citizens, on citizenship doesn't necessarily explain that the better performance of those schools that had promising practices or who are positive outliers, you know, we can't say that. But what we did observe is that schools that were in that group tended to have a very strong emphasis on civic readiness right alongside college and career. And that was very much in contrast to the typical performing schools, which had a much more graduation and career focused kind of outcome. So I'd say that, you know, one of the big overall takeaways for me, and then, you know, we'll, Amanda and I are going to kind of drill more into some of the findings. One of the big takeaways for me was that citizenship 
readiness was an imperative in these schools. It was operationalized at the organizational level. It was woven into the fabric and functioning of the school rather than just a curriculum happening within social studies classrooms. So we talked to social studies teachers, but we talked to teachers who were working in all different capacities. And so something I was so struck by is how these themes were coming up consistently across the building, across the policies. And I'll talk about this in a little bit, but even in how they were handling discipline, how they were handling, you know, students and how they charted their own sort of path through high school and, and what they decided to study. So it wasn't that it was just happening, isolated practice in a classroom, but that it was happening at this very systemic organizational level. It's almost as if like citizenship matters and is something we should do in schools. <laughs> Unfortunately, it's more likely to be banned right now in Texas than it is to be taken up, I feel like. Sorry, what, what else did you learn? So one of the, I think when I, when I came to um, working with, uh, at New, with New York Kids, it was after the initial study was done. So a lot, you know, the, the initial findings were already in place and it, and it allowed for some really interesting conversations about, you know, some other you know, ideas that, you know, started to, to, you know, present themselves. And like Catherine said, you know, there really seemed to be a, a strong, you know, in- intersection with citizenship. And I think that in addition to positive youth development, we, as we were, you know, reflecting on, on the study, it, was, it became even more clear too that even the academic side of it was a kind of non-traditional view when you think about college and career readiness and, and, and standardized testing and things like that. It was more of a deeper learning view of, of how academics can be shaped in order to help students to really develop fully and really thinking about like a whole child approach. And so because of that, you know, we really started to see that there was an opportunity to look again at the interviews in particular that had been conducted with the teachers and to really go back and see how some of the, the, you know, the practices that were put in place and some of the, the systems of uh, student support and, you know, in, in the ways of those intertwined with learning in the classroom really had this cross-sectional feature of developing that, you know, students as people alongside developing them academically. And those really fell in line with the, with what, um, research on uh, citizenship and 21st century learning kind of really, you know, points to. In particular, you know, it was it was really it provided an opportunity for like a holistic understanding of citizenship and how that prioritizes both moral kinds of education, so community, you know, how the ways that students can function and grow in communities alongside the development of critical thinking. So that students aren't only just learning academic material, but they're learning how to thrive and grow as members of a democratic society and a community. And one of the one of the authors that uh, well, one of the the papers that was really central, I think, to some of the uh, early frameworks around this was Westheimer and Kahn. And really, we we looked at the the three categories of their three categories of what good citizens are, and that I think kind of really helped to shape the rest of the thinking around how that intersection between positive youth development and deeper learning for critical thinking and, you know, developing students academically came to, came to bear on how the schools and, and the educators in the schools really saw their role 
in working with students and making sure that there was an egalitarian kind of society for them to function in, really honoring student voice, really helping them to see their their place, not only as learners, but as functional and important members of the school community and the community at large. So I'm still I'm still trying to prove to Miss Riddle that I actually am not a negative outlier. So I remember <laughs> I remember from the Westheimer and Con article that they had different types of citizens, personally responsible citizens, mm-hmm. participatory citizens, and justice oriented citizens. So what what types of citizenship did you see in these schools? And what did democracy look like in these schools? Because I often feel like a lot of student government is kind of just like getting to pick like, you know, less important things in school, not get to wrestle with the big stuff. What did these schools do? So our paper is like chock full of, and even then we had to cut so much out. There's just like examples abound, but, you know, I can provide just a few different things to sort of give the listeners an idea of the types of things we were seeing. But we saw like some of the very big kind of conceptual ideas that we've been talking about, we saw manifest in some different ways in these schools. And so one thing that was heavily emphasized, we saw in the positive outlier schools, and it's interesting. So was this commitment to pluralism that it was, and it was interesting because teasing out, you know, those differences between what's happening in one of the positive outlier schools versus the typical performing schools. And I think this gets to the point you were making a second ago, Dan, is certainly there was discussion in the typical performing schools about the importance of of pluralism and, and commitments to diversity and celebrating diversity. But I think what really looked different to, to us in the positive outlier schools was the ways in which they actually put that into practice. So this idea around commitment to pluralism, respecting pluralism, it was center, it was the center of the school culture. And so it was really emphasized, you know, I think from the mission statement all the way down to very small practices in the building, that the school culture is one in which all students need to be accepted, need to be celebrated. It was the central mission of uh, academic preparation. And, you know, I, you would see it walking into the schools visually all around the building to programs where They've had students trying to uh, support one another, whether it's academically or older students trying to support younger students. In, in communities where there were incoming immigrant populations, they had programs that were very like peer-centered, trying to enable students who had been in the United States for a period of time to support those who were just newly entering the United States. So there were constant opportunities for students to be involved in supporting one another and accepting one another. And there was a very, you know, low tolerance for any type of negativity that would be exclusionary. And I think it was, I think to me, what was so notable about it is the intentionality between, so it showed up in a mission statement, it it showed up in things you could look at around the building, but it was something that was showing up in the tiniest of practices and how they were creating programs for students to be interacting and supporting one another. And and that really kind of leads into, I think, one of the other things that we saw as distinguishing the positive outlier schools, which was this idea of having a a shared ethic of responsibility and sacrifice. Um, So again, you know, I, I remember one educator saying that the goal is to get people to feel like this is their school too. They wanted students to have ownership in the school. 
And so, you know, they wanted students to feel like this, they were as much a part of creating this community as any other adult in that building. And, you know, it was as simple as, again, opportunities where students were helping one another, also opportunities bringing students out in the community. Many of the schools, the Positive Outlier schools, mentioned different programs that involved students devoting time to working out in the community, that this, and this was sort of central to their, I think, identities in a lot of ways. And so that was, you know, something that continued to come across, you know, very consistently in the Positive Outlier schools. And I think one thing that was interesting about that, too, is the ways in which that would also manifest in school governance. So because there was, we want the sense of this is your school, too. You are, you are part of, you are responsible for helping create this community. There was many opportunities that we noticed in the positive outlier schools where students were part of the school governance process. And that, that showed up in a lot of different ways. So there certainly was the opportunities to be involved in student government. And to your point, Dan, I think a moment ago of like, to what extent is some of that performative or what is, the, or what is meaningful? Well, I, you know, I, I guess I'll always remember this story, but the time that we were doing a site visit at one of the positive outlier schools, there was an issue going on where members of the student government wanted to form a they wanted to do a protest, a kind of collective action demonstration, and the superintendent met with them. <laughs> he actually took time out um, to go and meet with them. He was taking calls related to it. He talked about how he met with them regularly. Uh, in time in his schedule was set aside to like meet with student government, and he talked a lot about how he tried to give them both guidance and space. So you know, wanting to help them figure out how to find what was important to them and how to put together this sort of collective action uh, event that they were trying to, to host, but then also like letting them be in the driver's seat on that. So, you know, that is like one example that really sticks out in my head of, uh, so certainly, you know, there were the student government opportunities, but there was a level of, I think, respect and feeling like the students were capable and important and valuable. Um, and it, 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 it showed up in the discipline. And I, I mentioned that a little while ago, but instead of, you know, and I think in the typical performing schools, a lot of what we saw was you would get in trouble. There would be sort of, you know, the standard go to the principal's office, a consequence is leveled, and that's the extent of it. Where in the positive outlier schools, it was a very different approach where and incorporated, I think, many more concepts around like restorative justice, although I don't know that, you know, any of the schools were saying that they did that, but they certainly were thinking about, okay, a harm was committed. And how do we rectify that, that there wasn't sort of this cookie cutter, there's this, and so there's a consequence that they felt like, you know, we, this is about relationships. And so first and foremost, what we need to do is have relationships with students so that they trust us. And when they do something that they shouldn't do or that we would like them not to do or that isn't in their best interest, they trust us that we're telling them the truth because they're this person that we know and have a relationship with and not somebody who, you know, they're sent to my office when they've done something wrong. And so they, when they're thinking about discipline, they're thinking about it from the perspective of forming a relationship first, like long before anything's happening. 
And, you know, when things do inevitably happen, because of course they do, it was a radically, I think, different approach to that. It, it was very much about, okay, let's hear from the teachers who are involved, the other adults in the building, understand their perspectives, and really working out, I think, consequences together, because they didn't want to hold students accountable, but they wanted to do it in a way that was meaningful, and that was about building their community, and was about, you know, strengthening the student, um, and not sort of excluding them or alienating them. And so, you know, I, I think probably given my sort of background and interest, I was always really struck by how that was showing up in discipline. And that this is really this sort of interesting area, I think, of, you know, how are we handling behaviors that aren't necessarily supportive of the community or kind of undermines our community, but also leveling out kind of consequence and, and accountability in a way that continues to strengthen and build the community rather than sort of divide it. So that those were some things that I think really resonated with me. And, the, and you know, the last thing I'll share is also just how much one thing that certainly was very popular that we heard across all the schools is the importance of and this is all the schools meaning positive outlier schools as well as you know those performing just as we would expect and there was always a desire to get back to to your conversation at the beginning there was always a desire to have students who are really good at sussing things out or being really critical thinkers that there's this you know dearth of you know there's this I'm sorry this overwhelming you know amount of information out in the world and they need to be able to analyze it and think critically about it and evaluate it and operationalize it and you know, be able to use it for, you know, in, in whatever their purpose may be, whatever the goal is of, of the, um, you know, activity. And I think what was interesting, though, is in the positive outlier schools, the way they would talk about kind of the ability to, to suss out or to think critically, to sort of evaluate information, the educators in positive outlier schools would talk about the purpose of that as a community building and enhancing need exercise where in the typical performing schools, it was very individual, you know, individualized. Like we need critical thinkers because they can participate in the economy and they can succeed well in, you know, college or whatever comes after, you know, high school or graduation for them. Where in the positive outlier schools, the way they talked about it was, geez, you know, to have a functioning, thriving community, we need people who are able to suss out information, to evaluate its merits, to think critically about it, to be thoughtful and evaluative. So for me, you know, there's, our paper is chock full of different examples. And like I said, there's even more examples than that than what we were able to put in there. But those were some, I think, of the big sort of really big takeaways for me of how I saw how, how the educators in positive outlier schools were thinking about this, how they were trying to operationalize it. What I hear you saying is that the it's a real curriculum that leads to wisdom for a lot of the students. Is that is that what I'm? <laughs> you know, I didn't think of it like that, but I think you're right. Yeah, I think that was the word I was searching for. All right, all right. You don't have to to humor me here. We already know Michael's suss out curriculum has really taken hold um, here. It's really taking but, off. I I hope that at some point you'll release the director's cut. I know your, uh, of your paper. That I think the, I think that's going to be like the, the Wayne Journal director's cut and that we maybe we can get those, you know, from TRSE. So we have a lot of folks listening to us. Some of them are classroom educators. Some of them are educators in, in a variety of levels. What are some advice you have for educators who want to 
put civic readiness next to college and career in their schools? So this is Catherine. I'll just give, I think, my really big takeaway from being involved in, in doing this work and hearing from educators. And so I think this is a slightly complicated answer for individual educators, because I think what we really found in these schools is what made them unique, in this study at least, was that it, it wasn't about just the thing that was happening in a classroom. It was about things that were happening very broadly across the school as an organization. Certainly there were, you know, I think talking about how you handle discipline, talking about, you know, how you're thinking about students as, you know, critical thinkers for the benefit of sort of a collective community. I think there's lessons in there for certainly individual educators and in, in how they approach their practice in their classroom. But it, my sort of big push or takeaway is how powerful it can be if we think about these things as, as district-wide, building-wide imperatives that are really woven very intentionally throughout not just what's going on in a classroom or you know, a subject area, but what's going on in opportunities academically. I hate this term, but non-academically, but all the other stuff we know is going on in schools, whether it's extra extracurriculars or social emotional learning, that all of that stuff is opportunities for students to be learning really valuable skills about what it's like to be a member of a community and to, to contribute to a community. So I, I feel badly because I feel in some ways that's a complicated answer. You know, it's in, and that's, I think, the challenge. That's the, the opportunity and the challenge that certainly I think there's things in our work that, you know, an individual educator could take back. But my, my broad takeaway from it is just how powerful it could be if it's brought to the organizational level at the school. But I invite Amanda and Kristen, who are educators and not social workers. I, I was thinking about Catherine that you brought up um, the walkout example, and that was in one particular school, a positive outlier school. And we did a follow-up study where we went and um, had conversations with young people in those schools. And in the one school that Catherine was talking about, we interviewed, I think she was in maybe 10th grade, a student. And what was interesting in that place, and this is to answer your question to a certain extent, is what can ed educators take away from this? I just spoke with the principal of the school actually last night and asked him how they were doing coming through the pandemic and everything and asking him about just how does he lead his building, you know, for, for kids and for the adults who, who work in that building to, to tackle um, problems, especially under any kind of duress. And he talked about the importance of, of people um, coming up with ideas and feeling like their ideas are valued and their voices are valued, their ideas are valued. But with the caveat, that if you're going to propose to do something, to change something, to improve something, to engage in some kind of collective action, you need to come with having done your research. So there, you know, done your homework on whatever the, the topic is or whatever the issue is. And that is the idea that they've kind of instilled in that particular school is that they, you know, kids understand that there are problems that they actually can solve, that they have agency to do it. And I, I just want to read to you a quote from one of these students when she was trying to organize this, this walkout. And this tells you a little bit about how people, the adults in the building, were, were creating an environment that 
help the young people be able to see themselves as agents for, for change in a particular way. So she said, so I don't know if you remember, but the Marjorie Stoneman Douglas high school shooting. So this is about the, the, the school shootings. And she said, after that happened, and mind you, this is a 10th grade student. A lot of schools and students started organizing walkouts across the country to happen on a specific day. And me and a few of my friends, we all banded together and we approached the principal. We're like, hey, you know, we want to organize this. We want to get permission from you. So we don't just all walk out and get in trouble and get detention. Yeah. So we had like many meetings and like different organizations. They had to make it sat in a conference room, like talked about what we wanted to do, how we wanted to do it, because the, the, the school can't take the heat. Like they can't get political because that's not allowed. So we had to make it like a specific way, but like we put together, they, they put together a video and it was a really nice thing. We went out on the front lawn over there and, you know, some students like said something, it was really beautiful. And at the end of the day, the entire school walked out to the field. We made a peace sign in honor of it. The pictures are actually in our hallway, but it was really nice to be able to show support for like gun control and stuff like that. Well-being in school, just say that we're not going to stand for this because it puts us in danger. That was really nice that they were able to listen to us. That's what we're talking about. That's what they're encouraging. And that's from the voice of a, of a young person in that school. Thanks, Kristen, for sharing that. I think, it, I think there's nothing we can say that says it better than that. And it's so exciting, as, as Dr. Wilcox was sharing, that they were able to do a follow-up study that actually involves students, which is a hard thing to pull off, especially when a pandemic suddenly blows up in the middle of your work. So <laughs> I'm glad you all were able to collect that follow-up. So thank you so much, Catherine S. Kramer, Amanda J. Lester, and Dr. Kristen C. Wilcox for chatting with us today. We do appreciate the fact that you spent the time with us. Thank you. It was a pleasure. Thank you. <laughs> thank you. It's been great. And so we certainly hope to continue these discussions online. People will probably continue them in other spaces. Can you tell us where people can find your work? Yeah. So this publication is out there, as we just talked about earlier. And then we also have a variety of reports, the case studies on these schools, and then cross-case reports on ny-kids.org. And we will be sure to get that in our show notes so everyone can access it. So check out the show notes. We'll have not only the TRC study, but that website and some of the other studies related to this one. We're all about sharing the learning at the Visions of Education podcast. If you're doing something fun or creative in education, or you just want to chat, and we get it. We're here. Hit us up at Divisions of Ed on Twitter. And if you haven't already, make sure to subscribe to Divisions of Ed on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google Play, and anywhere you'd like us to be. We'll be there for you. And if you know you're trying to improve your status right now, you're a negative outlier and you'd like to move over to positive <laughs> outlier status, leave us a five-star review. We can kind of, that'll help people suss through all the information that they find on podcasts. And, and they can get, find wisdom. And get to ours. And yeah, I think that is at least a form of wisdom. We would like to also thank Zach Seitz of Wiley High Thanks. School and the University of North Texas for his editing skills. You can find me on Twitter. I'm at Dan Kratka. And I'm at 42. Until next time, this is the Visions of Education podcast. Signing off.